How many of you have ever studied Obadiah? Two. The same as in the first service. How many of you have ever read Obadiah? Oh, you're better than the first service. We only had three. It's only one chapter. It's a little tiny minor prophet, yet it raises a very significant theological question. Why does God kill nations? I get asked that question all the time and have for years. I'm not going to satisfy your curiosity, but I am going to plant some seeds to begin to think about how God operates. And this is a particularly, this one book is focused on one particular nation. You may remember uh, last week we talked about Zephaniah. And Zephaniah was before the destruction of Jerusalem. And now this is the first prophet. Jerusalem's been destroyed. Northern kingdom is gone. Southern kingdom is now gone. The Assyrians who annihilated the, uh, the northern kingdom are gone because of the Babylonians. And the Babylonians have now destroyed the southern kingdom. Israel is no longer in existence. The people have been scattered. So all the prophets from now on, the minor prophets, are during or after the exile. And God's message begins to change. So Obadiah is one of the very earliest prophets after the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of Jerusalem. And so uh, there's about, as soon as it happens, God sends like five prophets, five or six, all at the same time to the people scattered now around the world, giving them a message. And so we're going to begin to see a shift in that message. Up until now, the message has been, stop what you're doing and quit sinning. They didn't listen, so you're done. Okay, they passed, they went past, God has a line in the sand, they stepped over. So now you're done. So you may remember when we talked about Zephaniah, we're at the very end of the southern kingdom. And uh, you had really, you had a great king, Hezekiah. And uh, Hezekiah was surrounded by the Assyrians. And he got a letter from the king that said, uh, has any nation be able to stand up to our gods? Don't listen to your gods, you can't do it either. And so uh, his people are grumbling inside the city walls, and he's surrounded by a great nation outside. He takes a letter, he lays it down in the temple, and he weeps. And he says, God, I, I don't know what to do. And God says, because you humbled yourself, uh, I'm going to rescue Jerusalem. It will not be destroyed in your day. And so through uh, miraculous supernatural intervention, the Assyrians left. So that was Hezekiah. After Hezekiah comes from Manasseh, almost one of the most evil kings in the south. His son, Onan, very evil. God took his life. And then his son is Joash. Joash became king at eight years old, had never read the law, didn't even know it existed. That's how far away in three generations the nation had gone. But yet at eight years old, he became king and he loved the Lord. And, you know, you wonder why. With Hezekiah, we learn that the prayer of a righteous person really does accomplish a lot. James says that the prayer of a righteous person accomplishes a lot. One person thwarted the Assyrians because of God's supernatural activity. So now we have Josiah. And it says he didn't turn to the left or to the right. He followed in the footsteps of David and did all that the Lord wanted. But he didn't even have the book of the law to know what that was. That's all being driven by conscience and the Holy Spirit. So one day he says to his staff, you know, we got this temple here to a God we don't even know. Why don't you go clean it out? And they found the book of the law and read it. He immediately tore his robe and went to the temple like Hezekiah 
and said in tears, and he said, Lord, I, I am sorry. I had no idea. And God said, remember the prayer of one person, one righteous person. I'm still trying to figure out who that is in our church. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So <laughs> the prayer of one righteous person shows you how powerful it is. God says, because you humbled yourself and you tore your robe and wept, Jerusalem will not be destroyed until after you die. So, so the destruction of Jerusalem got delayed 30 to 35 years because of Josiah. Okay? But now it's happened. It's in the past now. No longer in existence. The walls have been torn down. You know, when the walls, you wonder how they tear down the walls and the temple and all that. Well, several of us were just there a month ago, and it's all made of limestone. And limestone, in the presence of extreme heat, blows up. Okay? So what the Babylonians did, they didn't have to break through the walls. They just shot firebombs over into Jerusalem. And uh, when it hit the limestone, it exploded. So if you read Lamentations, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read just a little bit of it in a minute. Uh, you, you see the evidence of that because Lamentations is several have already been deported and the, and the walls are crumbling now. And, and it's really graphic. You have people dying or dead laying in the streets. You have mothers eating their children because they've been besieged for so long and there's no more food. And so uh, that's what happens. That's how they destroyed the city. They just exploded it and the walls all crumbled. Everything crumbled and it came down. It was a mess. And most of the most of the people have now been deported. And the only people they left in the land were the poor people to work it. Because it's, it's an asset to the Babylonians. They don't want to just walk away. So they left all the poor people there to work it. And so that they can make money. So that's what Obadiah walks into. So I'm going to read to you the first four verses of Obadiah. It's only one chapter. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. Okay, who's Edom. Edom is a little tiny nation to the south. Okay, under Zephaniah, he had said all the nations around Israel are going to be destroyed. But Obadiah picks out one nation, Edom. Edom are the descendants of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau? They're brothers, Jacob and Esau. Jacob's line became the Israelites. Esau's line became the Edomites. So they're distant relatives. So in, the, in here, you're going to see them referred to as brothers. That's how God thinks about it. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom, the descendants of Esau. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy, an envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her, that's Edom, for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock and make your home on the heights uh, they're south of Jerusalem in the mountains that are craggy mountains. They live there in the mountainous region. Uh, you say to yourself, can anyone bring us to the ground? A little bit of arrogance there. Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And you go on and read it. He's going to destroy them. And so the question is, Number one, how is this redemptive? Because the whole reason we're doing this series in the Minor Prophets is to see God's redemption. And why Edom? Why did he pick out this one nation? I've argued from the beginning that when you put the 12 Minor Prophets together, you begin to see God's love, his grace, his patience. Well, sure enough, this is 350 years after Solomon. When the nation split. Northern kingdom went down the evil route. Southern kingdom kind of wobbled. Some good kings, some bad kings. But now they're both gone. 
It's 350 years. This is almost not quite a thousand years after Moses. After Moses. God's very patient. He's not in a hurry. He doesn't bring nations down quickly, but he does bring them down. He does have a line in the sand at the individual level. Talk to Ananias and Sapphira. And the national level. None of these ancient nations exist. So why Edom? Why did this one nation get chosen? Okay, from, from the time of Esau, they had a contentious relationship. <clears throat> they didn't really get along. So when they went into the promised land, they came up from Egypt through the south, and they asked Edom permission to pass through on their roads. We won't even deviate. We won't take anything from your nation. We're not going to go to the right or the left. We're going to go straight through, and he wouldn't let them. So they had to take the long way around. So then under Joshua, when, they are, um, when they're conquering the land, they asked the nation of Edom to go with them. They wouldn't do it. Well, can we at least pass through your land? No, we wouldn't. And so they had a very contentious relationship from that time on. So we know that God, I, I proposed last week and the week before, two weeks ago, whatever it was, three weeks ago, that I asked the question, is God the author of evil or the restrainer of evil? Uh, I think he's the restrainer of evil, so he holds nations at bay, but like a good parent, sometimes he lifts that restraint, like you do as parents. You're the restrainer of evil for your kids. You have more seatbelts. When they're riding their bikes, you have them put a helmet on. All kinds of things like that to keep them safe. But every now and then, you have to lift that restraint to let them learn a lesson, don't you? You see, as parents, you're not raising children, you're raising adults. And that's really what parenting is all about, is to raise mature adults who love the Lord. And if you fail to lift that restraint, let them suffer consequences, then you've got big problems when they're in high school and beyond. And so part of parenting is, is learning when to lift that restraint and let them suffer the consequences. And that's what we see all throughout the Bible is God does that. So we know that because we've been studying the minor prophets, getting closer and closer and closer to the destruction of Jerusalem, that God decides to lift the restraint. Hezekiah and Josiah postponed that because of their faithfulness, but then there's no more after that, no more faithful kings. So God lifts the restraints. The Babylonians come in. We capture a glimpse of that in the book of Lamentations, written by Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was in Jerusalem at the time of its fall, and he wept a lot. Everybody did. And he's called the weeping prophet. Ezekiel, by this time, has already been taken out. So he's already been in one of the earlier deportations under the Babylonians. And so he's now in Babylon. And he's in Ezekiel uh, 8 and 9. He's weeping. He's a priest. And he says, God, I don't understand. Why? Why did this happen? So God takes him on a vision. It's fascinating to read these chapters. Takes him back to the temple. Says, tell me what you see. Everywhere he looks, he sees people blaspheming and worshiping all these blasphemous idols. Chemosh, Molech, all of that, instead of God. Then he takes him into the inner court where the rooms where they prepare the animals and said, now what do you see? I see men doing things with animals and women they shouldn't be doing. God said, right, here's the reality of the world. As a priest, you can't see that because everyone has a facade. But this is what's really happening. And so he's weeping. So Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem at the time that it falls, and he's writing about it, and Lamentations is that story of the fight. It's only, it's only three chapters or four, whatever, maybe short. Don't remember how many. But it's the story of Jerusalem just before and during and after they fell and how horrible it is. And I want you to listen to this. I'm not going to read it up here. I just want you to hear the story. 
I'm taking snippets from Lamentations. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Bitterly, she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all of her lovers, these are the nations who she had spiritually prostituted herself out to by accepting their gods. Among all of her lovers, there's no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. No one knows her appointed, no one comes to her appointed festivals. Her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve. She's in bitter anguish. These are the final hours of Jerusalem. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. He lifted that restraint. They have to now pay the price. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her enemies look at her and they laugh at her destruction. Where are your gods, Jerusalem? That's what the Assyrian king, has the the gods of any nation be able to stop us? We've annihilated the entire world and not one god has stopped us. If you think your god's up to it, don't bother to listen to him. This is the taunting, okay? This is the end of, of Lamentations. This is really what's happening on those final days. But then when you get over to Lamentations at the end of it, you have this one little word that we need to pay attention to. Lamentations 4.21. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom. Edom is singled out in these final days. And we're going to find out why in just a minute. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom. Remember, these are the descendants of Esau who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed and you will be drunk and stripped naked. Your punishment will end. Now he shifts to to, uh, Jerusalem. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile. He will punish you for your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. And you got that word, but. Zion, God has not forgotten you. But Edom, you're now in trouble. Okay? We still don't know what they've done, so we're going to go to Psalm 137 because there we're starting to zero in on what actually happened. Psalm 137 has two parts. The people are sta- they're now in exile, and they're weeping about what's happened. <clears throat> By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. It's just like Ezekiel. Why, Lord? This is the remnant. The people who rebelled against God, they didn't care. But these are the faithful, the ones that are left. Why, God? There on the poplars we hung our harps, for our captors asked for songs. And don't think this is something positive. These are the Babylonians taunting them. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, go ahead, sing us the songs of Zion. Your God wasn't there to rescue us. Sing us your songs of hope. Go ahead. You can see why they're weeping. Where did you go, God? You promised. Well, if you read the end of Deuteronomy, he did promise to bless them beyond measure. And when we get to Malachi, you're going to see that promise restored. He promised to bless them beyond measure. But then he said, but if you turn your back on me and you rebel and you walk away and you shake your fist and say the hell with you, God, then you could expect destruction. 
It's a whole long chapter of what he's going to do. And he's done it. He's done it. So the, they're taunting them and saying, go ahead, sing your songs. Where'd your God go? But then they shift gears in verse 7. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day that Jerusalem fell. This is what Edom did. They cried out, tear it down. Tear it down to its foundations. Okay, so Edom was the one nation who shouldn't have done what they did. They went after them as they're tearing down the walls. They joined Babylon. They stripped it of all of its valuables. They said, tear it down. They helped Babylon destroy their, their, their uh, relatives. So they're singled out for this really horrible, horrible thing that they did. So while they're in captivity, Obadiah, he prophesies against Edom in verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, see how God still sees them as brothers, Jacob and Esau, the descendants, he still says, God thinks in terms of nations here. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth, foreigners entered his gates, you cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not have gloated over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them with their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth. They're taking everything that's valuable. They're looting what we're actually seeing today in some of the cities, aren't we? Our own cities, breaking in and stealing things. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives. Here's the second thing. Not only did they help the Babylonians destroy it, but when those that escaped the Israelites that came south to their relatives, they killed them. They did two things. They killed them. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over the survivors to Babylon in the day of their, uh, their trouble. So we have here a nation. This one nation is singled out because of all the people you should be able to trust. It should be your distant relatives. Same thing in Micah. You may remember in Micah. The northern kingdom is decimated by the Assyrians and the refugees are heading south. And the southern kingdom, we don't like you, stay out. And so God sent Micah to say, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. That's a famous passage. What God, does God desire, O human? Remember that? To walk justly, humbly, and to love. These are your relatives. These are your relatives, the refugees that have escaped the Assyrian onslaught, and you're trying to keep them out. Hezekiah heard the message of Micah and opened the doors. And when they all came in, he said, let's offer the Passover together in violation of the law. Wrong time of year. People were not cleansed. The priests were not cleansed. And God blessed them for doing it. Because he, was, he saw a chance to bring some of the nation back together again. We have the same problem here with Edom. And so they have, they just did despicable things and God singles out them and says, now you're toast. 
But he doesn't forget. It's like every prophet, there's a little bit of wisdom, a little bit of hope woven in for the, for the remnant. The remnant, when you see all these prophets, there's always a remnant that God works his way through with hope. Right in the middle of Lamentations, we didn't read it, but the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. It's a great song that we sing. That came right out of Lamentations on the final hours of their life when they're, they're being killed. God says, don't worry, I remember you. We're getting ready to celebrate communion. What do we say? You know, do this in remembrance of me. That's Jesus' way of saying, I didn't forget you. Emmanuel, I came back for you. That's the story of the narrative of Scripture. I came back for you. Now, the problem is, is that we have to live in this world still, a world filled with corruption and greed. I heard, I heard a guy on a podcast, a guy I really, really respect, say, Okay, some of you may have heard this. Don't quote me on the numbers because I forgot the numbers. But think about it. He says, I'm going to read you the stats. And you tell me, is it the NBA or is it the NFL? 131 DUIs the last 12 months. 42 charges of domestic violence. 56 charges of fraud. And he goes down and lists several others. And, it, and the people get to vote. Is it the NBA or is it the NFL? So they voted, and he said, it's the United States Congress. Nothing has changed. Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Every nation is like this. We think we got it worse than everybody else? No, we don't. No worse than this. This was Israel's leadership too. The priests were abusing the women in prostitution at the temple. They were stealing the meat. They were the wealthy were stealing from the poor. They were enslaving them, doing all the things that the law says not to do. Solomon broke the law so many times. This king was given specific rules under the law, and he broke every single one of them. Do not gather horses, 1,200. Do not gather wives, 1,000 wives and concubines. Do not gather gold and silver, the wealthiest man in the world. He violated the law every way. No wonder the kingdom was destroyed. This is the world we live in. Now, the problem is that as the remnant, which is right here sitting before me, we have to move from this world of evil, corruption, and greed and step over into a world that we can't see yet a true spiritual world that Job described as too wonderful for us to understand. Okay? How does God do this? Let me conclude Obadiah and give you a couple of thoughts. Because this is God remembering his people. On Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. They will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. They crossed the line. The nation did cease to exist. The question that's raised in uh, scholarship is, does that mean that he killed every person in the nation? I don't think so. Okay, Because you see the Edomites... They, uh, Babylon, when Babylon took over Israel, they looked at this little nation and said, hey, we like what you got too. So they took them. They were taking nation after nation. They owned everything. 
Okay? Everything in the world, the known world at the time. And so they took them. So then Edom passed into the Persian Empire when the Persians took over from Babylon. They defeated the Babylonians. And then during the Hellenistic Empire, Alexander the Great and that whole group, they come in and they, they kept them. Edom passed into that one. And over time, they ended up in the Roman Empire as a little nation called Edomia. Okay? And uh, the Jews, it's a little complicated. We can talk privately if you want. But anyway, they... They forced them. They had a little bit of power for a couple of years. They forced them to become Jewish, to convert to Judaism. They all had to get, all the men had to be circumcised. Wow. Grown men. I'm glad we do it as babies. (laughs) So out of that little nation came Herod. He was from Idumea. Okay. There's always going to be a remnant. Herod was not a good man. But in John 4, the royal official who came to Jesus and asked, would you heal my child? He was one of the closest leaders to Herod. It doesn't say it, but Herod was very careful to pick loyal people from his clan. So this may have been a man from Idumea, right here, who trusted in the Lord Jesus. God does not mind indignation. He doesn't. But he's never in a hurry to do it. So this one little prophet raised the question, and I get it all the time, how could God kill all those people? And part of the answer comes in Genesis 15 when he's cutting the covenant with Abraham. One little tiny clause right there sets the stage for world history. He says to Abraham, as part of the covenant, your descendants are going to give this land, but not yet. I'm going to send them off to another country. That was Egypt. And they're going to be abused there. I know that. I'll take care of them. Don't worry. The reason is because the sin of the Amorites has not finished filling up. One little tiny clause that shows you God's grace. He took Israel out of the land for 450 years to allow the people of Canaan to make their decision, their commitment. Because at this period of time with Abraham, you have Melchizedek, uh, who's a king, a good man. You have Eshcol, who he negotiated for the land that eventually became part of Jerusalem. And they were good people. And so God just backed away and said, I'm going to give you rope and let's see what you're going to do with it. And eventually the people, they turned their fist against God and said, we want nothing to do with you. We're going to worship other gods. And Paul says they have no excuse. Romans 1. So God gave them over to what they wanted. Be very careful what you want. Because God's more than willing to let you have it. And Jesus says, you know, you have your reward in full. To the Pharisees, if you're going to grab the glory, you got it in full. There's nothing more to be had. Nothing more to be had. And that's what's behind the warning in Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning willfully out of rebellion not weakness. There's no sacrifice for that sin. Just judgment. And that's what we see right here. God gave them hundreds of years of patience. And they made the decision, they don't want anything to do with you. I said, okay, you're done. It's an early version, I believe, of what happened with the Pharisees when they came to Jesus and said, what you're doing, you're doing by Satan. He said, you just committed the unpardonable sin. You stepped across the line. You can't go back now. 
And that's what they did. Edom did that. But God was careful with the remnant. Israel did that. And they ceased to exist. But the remnant stayed on. They continue. We may not like it. We may not understand it. But God is God. And he lets us live in this world until this world decides. We want nothing to do with you, God. It says, okay, I'll protect the remnant, but the rest of you are gone. Father, thank you that we know you to be a God of grace. Lord, the, the ones who don't know you, they can't even make sense of it. They don't understand. They're just hostile and angry, greedy, doing all the things that you despise. But as the remnant, we are grateful, Lord, because the story of the prophets all the way through is how much you care for and love them. Lord, we don't always understand what you do. We don't always like it. Sometimes it just hurts and it's uncomfortable to us, frustrating. Sometimes it even makes us angry. But Lord, we always come back to you because of the, what comes through all the time is your love for us, the remnant. Thank you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. And as the Father and John said, we believe, Father, help us in our unbelief. Thank you for being kind to us and help us to be kind to our neighbors, to love them well and to show them your grace. In your son's name we pray and ask these things. Amen.